How's it going? Good. All right. It's just kind of a casual Saturday evening. That's cool. Um, I often refer to our church as a family, so I wanted to share some news with you as family. Uh, some of you already know that in December, my wife and I are expecting our second child to be born, which is cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, and extra exciting about that, uh, we found out last weekend that it's a girl, which is really cool. Yeah. Uh, go girls. Um, uh, it's extra exciting to us because we already have one child. His name is Edison and he is a boy. So now we get to experience all the joys of having a girl. Um, Edison is one and a half years old. So we've started as best as we can preparing him for the reality of having a baby sister in like five months or whatever. Uh, and so we got him like this doll uh, that he can hug and rock and that's cute and everything. But there are some things that we really want him to work on, so we've kind of stepped up the human training regimen for him. Uh, so, uh, like, we would really like him to be able to play uh, by himself a lot more, uh, be more patient. Uh, I don't know if being potty trained in five months is a pipe dream, but if that's possible, hooray, like, we're going to go for it. Um, but there's one thing that we really want him to work on, and it has to do with our dog. Uh, we have a golden retriever. Her name is Potato. Uh, we just thought it would be funny to name her after an inanimate object, and Potato came to mind first. Thus, her name is Potato. Uh, we got Potato uh, maybe a year and a half before Edison was born, and as we were training her, one of the things that we did was if she did something really bad, we'd bop her on the nose. Like, it wouldn't hurt her, but it would just get the message across, hey, what you just did, it's not okay. And we've realized in the past few months that we can't do that anymore because Edison has been watching us. Um, and there have been times where just out of nowhere, for no reason, he'll toddle up to Potato shouting, no, no, and start like hitting her in the face. And we're like, no, you can't do this. And Potato's really sweet. Again, she's a golden retriever, so she like, she just takes it. But it was getting bad to the point where like he would approach her from a distance with his hand already like primed to come down and she'd be flinching before he even got to her. So we realized, okay, this is a problem. So we've been teaching Edison that it's not okay to hit. Um, but deeper than that, we've been teaching Edison to apologize, to say that he's sorry, which just blows my mind. Can you teach someone to be sorry? Are they just sorry already? How does that work? I don't know. But we're trying to teach him how to say uh, that he's sorry. So anything that he hits Potato, we say, oh, Edison, that's not okay. You need to tell Potato that you're sorry. So he slowly toddles up to Potato and looks her in the eye, and he does this, which is good. Like, it's a good start. You know, he's only one and a half years old, and you have to start somewhere. I was thinking about this because uh, we're in this series this summer where we're looking at different psalms in the Bible that touch on particular emotions that we feel often or at least a few times in our life. Uh, and the, the psalm that we're looking at today has to do with repentance. It has to do with apologizing to God when we have done something against him. And the psalm we're looking at today is the most wholehearted, authentic 
vulnerable, transparent, you name it, expression of repentance that I have ever seen. And reading it makes me feel like I haven't advanced much farther than Edison has in the art of saying sorry. So before we can dive into this psalm, we have to understand the context of it. The psalm was written by King David uh, in Israel, and uh, this happened at a very pivotal moment in his life. He wrote this psalm right after his affair with Bathsheba. Uh, if you're not familiar with this story, uh, David, he was king of Israel, and he was sipping his coffee on his roof, and a couple roofs over was this very beautiful woman, Bathsheba, and she was bathing out in the open, and David was bored, and he was king, and he could have whatever he wanted, right? So he invited her over for a visit and they ended up sleeping together, which was terrible because both of them were married to other people. So this was an adulterous affair that occurred. And this is the part that we tend to fixate on because affairs, they just grab our attention. They're dramatic. They're, they're sticky, but there is so much more to the story because this is not just the story of uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba, this is also about the tragic things that he did to her husband, whose name was Uriah. Uriah, to make it even worse, was one of David's closest friends, and Bathsheba was his wife. Uriah and David, they fought wars together and battles together, battles that eventually led to David becoming king. They were brothers. Uh, that were melded together on the battlefield. This was the reason why their houses were so close to each other is because David gave him a house close to the palace. And David would have covered this entire thing up except there was a problem. David had gotten Bathsheba pregnant. And there's no way that it could be Uriah's baby because Uriah was off fighting a war for David very loyally, which again makes it even worse. So David calls Uriah back home and he tells him to take a break from the fighting and go and be with his wife. But very honorably, Uriah says, well, why should I get to sleep in my bed if my brothers are out there and they don't get to sleep in theirs? So he sleeps outside of his house. So David gets Uriah drunk, trying to loosen up his morals a little bit, but this doesn't work. Uriah just falls asleep. So David does something absolutely terrible. He sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a letter in his hand. And the fact that he makes Uriah carry this letter is just, there's something so dirty about this because it was a private letter to the commander of the battlefield. The instructions to the commander were that he was supposed to put Uriah at the very front line of the fighting. And when the fighting got the fiercest, he's supposed to pull all of his troops back without telling Uriah. So Uriah is left in the middle of the fight all by himself to be cut down and killed. And that's exactly what happens. David murders Uriah. It's not just what he did to Bathsheba, but it's also what he did to Uriah. Now, David's done some pretty messed up stuff in his life up to this point. He's this very hot-headed, spontaneous, passionate guy. But there is something about the premeditated, sinister nature of what he did here that stands out from the rest. Check out 1 Kings 15.5. It says this, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. David crossed a line that he hasn't crossed before. This is like the one thing that he wishes 
he could take back. Like if you can think of the biggest mistake that you've ever made, the one thing that you would give anything to undo, that failure that you would take back in an instant if you could, that's exactly how David was feeling when he wrote this psalm. So when we open up our Bibles to read this, it's like we're opening up David's chest cavity and we see his heart. It's like gory and it's pounding and it's, it's there. there. There's nothing glorified about it. Like this is David's core that we are taking a look at here. So let's open up our Bibles together to Psalm 51. David starts in verses one and two and he says this. Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So what David is asking of God here is forgiveness. Now we need to remember here before we go any further that when we sin, there are immediate present consequences that make an impact almost instantly depending upon what it is that we've just done because the very nature of sin is destruction. It destroys. It can tear us apart. It can tear the people around us apart. But what David is asking for here is a clean slate. David is asking for God to forgive him. And he starts this by appealing to who God is. Merciful. Mercy by its very nature is undeserved. You can't deserve mercy. Mercy is when you hold a punishment back that you fully deserve to give to someone because they fully deserve to receive it. To be merciful is to intentionally choose to forgive someone when you're in the position to punish them for what they did. And multiple times in the Bible, God self-identifies as merciful it's who he is, and David knows this. So David starts the conversation by going to God in his mercy because he knows that there wouldn't even be a conversation if God wasn't merciful. David knows what he did and he knows what he deserves. And Samuel, he says, he confesses that he deserves to die for what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, when we go to God asking for forgiveness, it's easy for us to take his mercy for granted when we don't really understand how big of a deal his mercy is. And I think one of the reasons why I do this and why we do this is we often mistake God's mercy for leniency. And those are two very different things. Leniency uh, comes from someone who has a very open-handed perspective of justice. If something isn't a big enough deal, they're willing to let it slip through the fingers with uh, their fingers without it being punished. Or maybe it's just like it's socially or culturally acceptable. So because everyone's doing it, then they're not going to prosecute anyone for doing it. There is no justice in leniency. Mercy is something else entirely. Mercy comes from someone who has a very strong-handed perspective on justice. They care about every dot and iota of the law, and they are withholding a punishment from someone they fully deserve to give it to because they fully deserve to receive it. Mercy comes from someone who's in a position to punish someone because they fully deserve to receive it, and they choose not to. They choose to forgive that person. And here's the thing about justice and mercy. The more an individual values justice, 
the more powerful that person's mercy is. Because if someone has such a deep, strong desire to pursue justice in every dark corner, for them to value justice so much and to choose to show mercy is huge. So when we think about God and how much he values justice, his desire for justice is absolutely unmatched. So when we think about him showing us an ounce of mercy, that should bring us to our knees, humbled and awestruck. God is not lenient. He doesn't let things slip through his fingers. God is intentionally choosing to be merciful. The Me Too movement is in response to decades of leniency. Years and years of people turning a blind eye to terrible, terrible things happening because it was, it was just, everyone did it. It was culturally acceptable and there was no prosecution happening. Because of this leniency, some statistics show that over half of the women in the United States have been sexually harassed and the person who harassed them was never prosecuted. No conviction or anything was led to in that. There's no justice in leniency. But on the other hand, mercy is entirely different. Andy and Kate, they had a 19-year-old daughter who was shot point-blank in the face with a shotgun by her boyfriend. She made it to the hospital, but her parents had to make the impossible and heartbreaking decision to take her off of life support. After doing this, sometime later, they made the decision to forgive their daughter's murderer. And then they started to visit him once a month in jail and they developed this relationship with him. Currently, they are trying to get his life sentence reduced down to 20 years. They now refer to him as their spiritual son. That's mercy. That should leave us humbled. Mercy should leave us awestruck. And merciful is who God is. He's not lenient, he's merciful. And David knows this, so he goes to him. But then David spends some time talking about who he is. Look at verses three through five. David goes on by saying, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is a thorough and complete and transparent ownership over what he did. He is taking the full blame and ownership of it. He's not mixing in justifications and excuses. He, he's just laying it all out on the table. David is basically exposing his neck to God, saying, you don't even need to tell me what I've done because the memory of it replays in my mind over and over and over, and I wish it, was, it would stop. Ultimately, God, this is between me and you. I did this against you, so you are totally in the right to punish me however you see fit to punish me. Sin is in my nature. I am a sinful being. It's who I am. I am a lost cause. This is why it's so important that David starts by going to God in his mercy, because without mercy, David would have no hope. 
David knows what he's done, and so he confesses everything that he did. But he goes beyond that and confesses everything that he is. Sin is in my nature. I was born into it. It's who I am. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. What David does here is the opposite of what I tend to do in the same situation. There have been times where I go to God uh, asking him for forgiveness, but then I kind of go on this different track. I call it diversifying the blame. I picture me and God standing in this really big white room, maybe this big, and it's just him and I, and I ask God to forgive me, but then I said, but you know, God, this is actually a pretty common struggle. There's lots of people who deal with this too. And then this multitude of people comes into the room and I just stand in the middle of the crowd. And then I say, but, and I was also tempted. And so I bring Satan into the room and Satan stands in front of me. And let's say I did this, uh, this thing against uh, an individual. Let's say I was talking behind their back. And so I bring them into the room and I say, but look at them. Is anything that I said about them untrue? And I have them stand in front of me. And sometimes I even have the audacity to bring God himself into the room. And I say, what about the Holy Spirit? Isn't he supposed to give me self-control? Where was he in this moment? And I bring him into the room and put him before me. And I know why I do this. Because when it's just me and God and I'm in the wrong, it feels so vulnerable and alone and I feel so exposed. So I hide in this crowd of people just placing the blame on everyone in this room. And in my mind, logically, I think, it's like, yeah, I deserve to be punished for this probably, but I can take it as long as it's divvied up amongst everyone here in the room that I've brought in here because there's a bigger picture here. Blame should be divided amongst everyone here. And that's not how it works. And I know that. And David could have done the exact same thing. He could have said, where was Bathsheba? And he brings Bathsheba into the room. What was she doing bathing on the roof in the middle of the day? She was asking for something like this to happen. He could bring in Uriah. It's like, I brought Uriah home and gave him the opportunity to be the husband. But no, he cared more about these men halfway across the country than he did about his own family. Where was he? He could have brought the baby into the mix. I didn't want this baby to grow up in shame. I didn't want this to be its story. I did this for the baby. He could even bring God into the mix. You made me king. I did not ask for this responsibility. All I'm doing here is protecting your reputation as king and put God before him. But David doesn't do that. David does the opposite of this. David waits until the room has been totally cleared and it's just him and God standing there. And he says, this is between you and me. What I did, I did against you. And I am fully in the wrong and you are fully in the right to punish me however you see fit to punish me. That is true repentance. Owning the full weight of what we've done before God. And when we go to God in repentance and we mix in excuses and justifications, all we're doing is hiding. It, it doesn't make any kind of an impact. All we're doing is just we're, we're trying to stand behind a crowd of excuses and, and people and diversifying the blame so that we're not exposed. But when we fully step into the light like David did, stark naked, exposing everything on us and inside of us, that's what repentance is. 
So everything David has done up to this point is kind of repentance 101 as we know it. We go to God and we ask for forgiveness and then we confess everything. We lay it all out on the table. And we tend to stop here. But David doesn't stop here. David pushes deeper into places that we don't really feel like we are allowed to go with God after we've failed. But David shows us that we can. See, starting in verse 6, it begins this section that is so different from what we've read up to this point. It feels like it shouldn't even be a part of this psalm. Take a look, verses 6 through 12. After everything David just said, he laid it all on the table and took full ownership. He says this, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. When I think of everything that David had just done before he sat down to write this, and I read this part, I think, is he even allowed to ask God for these things? Like, is David crossing over this line? Is he being too bold? But he's not, because the things that David is asking for, these are the things that God delights in doing and is even already doing in him. Look at verse 6 again. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The inward being, the secret heart, these are Hebrew terms for the very core of who we are. Everything that we do, think, feel, every action that we take, it comes from this secret place, this secret heart, this inward being. It's like it's our spiritual DNA. And as different as verse 5 and 6 seem to be, here's how they go together. In verse 5, David is saying, I am a hopeless cause. Sin is in my nature. But in verse 6, he says, but you, God, you want to change my nature. So knowing this, David does the most beautiful thing. In verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. David's referring to something very specific here. Uh, back in his time, if you had done something that the law considered to be unclean, you needed to be purified. So you would go to the temple for a purification ritual. And part of this ritual is you had to find a hyssop bush, and you had to cut a branch off of the hyssop bush, and you'd bring this branch to the priest at the temple. And you'd give the branch to the priest, and the priest would take it, and he would use it in the purification ritual. So in David's situation, after everything he'd done, this is something that he probably would have ended up doing, except he doesn't. What David does instead is in his mind's eye, he's holding this hyssop branch. And instead of turning to the priest, David turns to God himself and holds out the hyssop branch. And he says, you do it. I don't want this. You do it because David knows that God can do something much deeper and much more effective than some priest could ever do. 
See, back in David's time, if he had gone to the priest, the priest could wash over what you've done. But instead, David goes to God and tells God he wants him to wash it out of him. He doesn't just want it washed over. He wants to be washed clean from the inside out. And David is so bold to ask this because he knows God. And he knows that even though God is not lenient and he is absolutely grieved by sin, what God delights in even more than justice is transformation, which is exactly what David is asking for. Look again at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Not fix the heart that I already have. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When we have seriously failed and we feel that guilt, when we feel just, it feels awful when we've done this. If, if you look deeper into this whole psalm, you can see David expressing what it feels like when we've realized that we've made a huge mistake very well. But when we feel like this, we often stop at verse five and we say, God, I messed up. I am a lost cause. Sin is in my nature. Forgive me. But then we stop there. Because logically in my mind, if I think, well, if sin is in my nature, there's nothing more that God can do. So I'm just going to take my forgiveness, which I'm grateful for, and I'm just going to go home. Because why would he want to spend any more time with me? But that's shame talking. Shame tells us that we are unfixable, which is true. Sin is in our nature. It's part of our spiritual DNA. It's who we are. But what David shows us is God has the ability to go into the inward being, into the secret heart, and change that nature from the inside out. Our physical DNA, our DNA code, it determines all of our physical characteristics, what we look like, the things that we have going on inside of our body, it's, it's because of DNA. One of the reasons why we look a lot like our parents sometimes is because parents, they pass down part of their DNA code to us. So the DNA code that made them look like them, if we look like them, it's because we've got that same part of that DNA code in our DNA. So our body put us together in a similar way, which is pretty crazy. Like as we speak, DNA is putting my daughter together. That just like blows my mind. But there's another side to this because Genetic disorders and hereditary diseases, the, the things that we get from our parents, those are passed down to us through DNA. Now, recently there's been some pretty exciting advancements in using CRISPR to treat specific diseases like cancer. If you don't know what CRISPR is and you want to be amazed and terrified at the same time, Google it, it's pretty fascinating. CRISPR is a technology that we've known about for a couple of decades, but in the most recent years, we've discovered that CRISPR can be used to go into our body and change our DNA. If you've missed that, I'll say it again. We now have the ability to very easily and cheaply and effectively change our DNA. And that terrifies me for all sorts of reasons, but... 
There's an exciting part to this because just a few months ago, the FDA just approved a treatment involving CRISPR for a very specific type of blood cancer. There's a bunch of different types of cancer and this is just one of them. Scientists have been using CRISPR in cancer patients with this type of blood cancer and they changed the patient's DNA so that their immune system now has the ability to fight cancer cells on its own. This means no chemo, no drugs, the body just fights cancer like a cold. And what is really crazy about this is if that cancer was to ever come back, the body's DNA is still changed. So if that cancer ever started to come back, the body would immediately start fighting it again and you never know it was there. It can never come back. This doesn't always work, but when it does on the specific type of cancer, it is nothing short of miraculous. The reason why every one of us has a sinful nature is because we inherited that from our parents. They passed down that part of their spiritual DNA. In David's time, going to the priest would be like treating the symptoms of the disease. It was an outside-in approach to uh, attacking sin. But David wanted something more than that. So instead of going to the priest, he went to God. And he asked God to move into his inward being, into his secret heart, and change his nature so that the disease could no longer survive inside of him. God is so merciful that he's not just willing to forgive us, but he's willing to take the time to move into our inward being, our secret heart, and change the core of who we are, to change our sinful nature into something much better than he intends. Not only that, but God delights in doing this and he does this for a purpose that is almost too wonderful to fathom right after we've sinned, right after we've failed. But David knows what it is. And he shows us too, verses 13 through 19. David says this. After all this, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David understands that after what he just did to Uriah and Bathsheba, the thing that he would give anything to take back, God still wants to use him. These verses are not a bargain. David is not saying, if you do these things for me, then I will do these things for you. David understands what God is up to here. 
He sees the work that God is doing deep down inside of him, and he realizes that it's for a greater purpose. This would not make sense if it weren't for the most beautiful verse in the entire chapter. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What this means is no matter what we've done, if we come to God with our broken spirit and remorseful heart, he will never, ever turn us away. But going further than this, when we have royally messed up, it feels like we get kicked off to the B team. Like there's these people that are really used by God. And then there's the people that God just kind of like tolerates. And like, we get to go to heaven, we're forgiven and stuff like that. Maybe we have a cool conversation every once in a while, but it's these people that are really used by God. We think the prerequisite to be on the A team is purity. It's, it's perfection. It's never making a huge mistake. We're all human, but it's not like seriously messing up. But that is not the case at all because this shows us the only prerequisite to be used by God, regardless of what we've done, is to come to him with our broken spirit and our remorseful heart. God can do something with that. The imagery that David is using here, it points back to the temple again and the priest because he's talking about a sin offering. If you needed God to forgive you for something, you wouldn't bring a hyssop branch to the temple, you would bring a goat. And you bring this goat to the altar and you put your head on the goat and you slit open the goat's throat and you'd bleed it out in front of the altar. And once it had bled out and died, you would hand the goat to the priest and the priest would go back to the altar and he would burn it, making atonement for your sins and God would forgive you. That was the system that God had set up in place before Christ had come back then. But David says here, he shows us that God wants a different kind of sacrifice. When we've messed up, God doesn't want a goat he doesn't want us to give more in the offering plate at church. He doesn't want us to try harder, fix ourselves, and come back when we've got that all in order. He doesn't want us to try to make up for what we've done for good deeds. When we've messed up, what God wants us to bring him is our broken spirit, our remorseful heart. That's it. But the challenge to this is, is when we have a broken spirit and a remorseful heart, those are things that we instinctively, we keep inside of us. We don't want to let it out. We don't want to see it ourselves. We don't, definitely don't want God to see it. But what's cool about this imagery that David is using is it shows us that God wants us to sacrifice that broken spirit in the same way. He wants us to bring our spirit to him and open it up and just bleed it out in front of him to just get it all out there. All of those emotions, those feelings, that guilt, that shame, just get it all on the table. And then we hand that spirit to God so he can burn it and give us something better in return. When we offer our broken spirit, that's something that God can take. That's something he can transform. And that is something that God can use when we've failed, it often feels like we deserve to get kicked out of the game, so we just bench ourselves. But that is the wrong perspective. In professional soccer, the World Cup is going on right now. The final is tomorrow morning, and I'm preaching tomorrow morning. Yay! Um, in, in professional soccer, 
players have kind of gained this reputation of being overly dramatic about injuries on the field, if you know what I'm talking about. There's some pretty great YouTube videos out there of players just like barely getting grazed on the leg and they drop to the ground and they're on their knees and they're rolling, grimacing in pain, screaming. It's kind of pathetic to watch. Um, but I was watching the World Cup uh, last week with my brother-in-law and he taught me some things that have started to change my perspective. Uh, each team has 11 players on the field, <clears throat> but what I didn't know is that in any game, you're only allowed three substitutions. You're only allowed to swap players on the field three times in regular time. Now, this includes injuries. So if one of your players gets seriously injured and needs to be taken off the field, when you replace that player, it counts as one of your substitutions. So the bigger picture here is, if four of your players got seriously injured and taken off of the field, you'd only be able to replace three of them, and your team would be down a man for the rest of the game. This happened to England in the semifinals on Wednesday, and they lost the game. It's possible they could have won it if they were at full strength, but they were down a man for the rest of the game. So this gives kind of a different perspective for players compared to other sports. If your coach chooses you to be one of the 11 players out on the field, in the back of your mind, you know that your goal is to be out on the field for the entire game because your team, it can't take too many substitutions. So yeah, these players, they might make a big deal about their injuries, but the fact is they get back up again and they stay on the field at all costs. And that's David's perspective. This psalm of repentance for David is about getting back up on his feet again. Looking at this psalm, I can't tell you, here's what David is teaching us, because he's not teaching us anything. This is a prayer between him and God. But if we look at this like a poem, there's a main theme that we see running through the entirety of it, and that's the theme of priest and the role of priest. See, after what David had done, he could have gone to a priest to mediate between him and God. That was the system that was set up. He could have given the priest the branch. He could have given the priest the sacrifice, but he doesn't. David wants more than that. So David went to God and he said, you be my priest. And if you are my priest, you can do things in me that will allow me to serve as your priest. Then... I can turn people back to you. If you open my lips, I can sing of your righteousness and I can declare your praises. Then I can make sacrifices of worship as they were intended to be made. David astonishes me because it's like he traveled a thousand years into the future and saw what life could be like after Jesus had come. And then he went back to his time and he said, well, that's great. I'm just gonna live like that now, which he does. And I didn't know that that was allowed, but he does it. And God's like, okay, cool. Which is ironic because what we do sometimes is we go back to how things were when he was around and live like that, where we think we need someone to mediate between us and God. And there's this awkward degree of separation and there's rituals and offerings that we need to perform if we want to get close to God again, because after we failed, there's this weird separation. But that is not the case at all. Because the things that David is asking for in the psalm of God are not too much. They are exactly what God has given us today through Jesus. In Hebrews, 
It refers to Jesus as our high priest. Just like David asked God to be his priest, God himself has now become our high priest. So we don't need someone to mediate between us and God. David's asking for transformation and God has given us the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us and make us more like Christ. It's in our inward being, our secret heart, working deep down inside of us to change our very nature, the core of our being to become more like him. And God does this for the same purpose that David offers himself for. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What this verse means is if any one of us have made the decision to put our trust in Jesus, we are now part of a priesthood. Here's what this means. God has made you a priest so that you can care for the souls and the needs of the people around you. God wants to show himself through you to other people. Regardless of what you've done, God wants to use you. So he's made us priests. Some of us have the role of pastor. All that means is shepherd. Every one of us has a much higher calling, and that's priest. And you are the priest of your kids. You are the priest of your husband. You're the priest of your wife. You're the priest of your mother and your father. You're the priest of your sister and your brother. You're the priest of your boyfriend and your girlfriend. You are the priest of your neighbors in your neighborhood. You are the priest of your workplace. You are the priest of your atheist friend. You are the priest of the refugee. You are the priest of the homeless person asking you for cash. You're the priest of the stranger weeping to the side of the room with no one comforting them. You are the priest of your pastors. Repentance is not about getting forgiveness so we can wait for death with a clear conscience. Repentance is about getting back up on our feet. Because regardless of what we've done, we are a priesthood and there is work to do. Let's pray. I just want to give you a minute to process things to yourself. So if it's helpful to you, just keep your eyes closed for a moment. Before even going to God with this and talking to him about it, I just want to give you a chance to wrap your mind around the fact that God is merciful. So just take a moment and try to like really think about it if you've never really tried to think about this before. Because I don't know if I have until I started working on this. And, it, it, and it's, it's a pretty big deal. So just think about how much God yearns for justice in this world and for things to be made right. And then considering that, how he decided to show us mercy by sending his own son to die for us. So just take a moment and just try to wrap your mind around that before even going to God.
Okay. Now with that in mind, I want to give you the opportunity to put yourself in that big white room with God that we talked about. Maybe there's something, there's some unfinished business that you and God need to do. Now, it doesn't have to be the worst mistake of your life. It could be anything that you've done that's causing you to feel the sense of guilt and the shame in you and God. You haven't really talked about it. So I want to picture yourself in this room with God. And maybe immediately there are people standing around you in front of you that you're, you're kind of hiding behind. I want to give you the moment to kind of in your mind's eye just clear the room until it's you and God. You're not even sharing anything with him at this point yet. You're just clearing the room till it's you and God. Okay, now keeping in mind that God is merciful and remembering verse 17 that the sacrifices that God delights in are just a wide open, broken, vulnerable spirit, a heart of remorse. I just want to give you the opportunity to just be open and real with God and taking full ownership of whatever it is that's on your mind right now. So go ahead and just do that with him. Father, you are merciful on an unimaginable level towards us. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die in our place so that justice could be done and mercy could be shown. Thank you. God, we can come to you with our spirit just as it is, and you will take it. You will take our remorseful heart as a sacrifice to you. God, you are doing a work inside of us that we could spend a lifetime trying to wrap our minds around and not being able to fully appreciate. Your Holy Spirit dwells inside of us, sanctifying us, making us more like you. Thank you. God, we don't want to just sit around. We want to be used by you. So we come to you with an open heart, bringing to you who we are, what we've done knowing your love for us and your mercy for us. So Father, with these things in mind, we worship you right now.